What about our volition? Where is that involved? If God made the choice and the decision to save humanity, and Jesus Christ made the decision for us, choosing rather to die than to destroy his enemies on the cross with such great love, then where's our volition come in? And some probably have assumed that I've been saying it doesn't matter, our volition doesn't matter. It's quite the contrary. Our volition is actually freed once we're in Christ, for one thing. Secondly, our volition is directed toward whether to participate in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. And that's an ongoing decision afterwards. Many people say, well, I made the decision for Christ, so I'm in. Well, you may be in, and you made the decision for Christ because the Holy Spirit sealed you and made you know that. But there is an ongoing decision not to resist the reconciliation that's in Christ Jesus and to participate in his history. It was a decision Paul made to say, I was crucified with Christ. He chose to live this way. The life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. That was a choice that he made, and he made it daily. And so this is according to the covenant that God gave. Covenant is unconditional. There are no conditions to be met on the part of man for salvation. The conditions have been met at the cross, as Denny's prayer actively and truly brought out. The decision was made by Jesus Christ at the cross, But our choice becomes whether or not to participate in Christ in the life of the Spirit. And as believers, who have been granted the giftedness of faith to put off the old man, the Adamic ontology, rather than reconfigure it in a ritualistic, sacramental, or moral way and have that be a counterfeit Christianity. So I just wanted to put that before you now. Because as Ezekiel 36 says, by the new covenant, God will put his spirit in his people and cause them to walk according to his ordinances and according to his commandments, which are summed up in loving God and loving one another, which is performed in us by the Holy Spirit. But we also, in Philippians 2.12, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God in us working. So we'll be dealing with that. I just want to put the feeler out for you at first volition enters in from choosing to participate in Christ Jesus the covenant of our salvation is unconditional it's on the part of God he doesn't say do this and live he just says in Ezekiel 16 live he said I came upon you speaking of Israel when you were in your blood cast off as a child just born and cast off into a ditch and God says I came to you and I said to you live That's God's covenant. It's not a contract, and we're going to get into that very in-depth. The difference between a covenant and a contract came because of a failure to translate the Hebrew word covenant, berith, and the failure to translate the New Testament word for covenant, diatheke, by the Latin when the Western church came and dropped the ball on this in a huge way, in an enormous way. And that's why I believe that the insights captured recently by Douglas A. Campbell and others, Alan Torrance, also his theological take on Romans, are revolutionary. And that we are urged by the Holy Spirit to adopt some of the things that came about. The second thing is, well, how are you going to show us that Romans involves a dialectic or a rhetorical argument between Paul 
and this other teacher whom he anticipates showing up in Rome. And as I've said before, and it's, I see God's providence for when I studied Lonergan, I studied eight theological functional specialties, a way of approaching the word of God. One of them was dialectics. And dialectics is when you have a position and then a counterposition. And there are two kinds of dialectics, and that's what I found out even very recently before entering this study. There is a dialectic of contraries. In other words, the position is one, the counterposition is another, and there's a reconciliation between the two. There can be a reconciliation between the two. But there's also a dialectic of contradictories where the two positions are irreconcilable. And that's what we have in Romans. In Romans 1 through 4, we have the expose of a false gospel by Paul. And what I'm going to do today is show you vast passages in which Paul and this other teacher's position are in a rhetorical kind of argument. What this does is it dramatically portrays and reveals the gospel of God about his son as a divine rescue mission for all of humanity, not just a forensic justice that each person has to decide to believe in order to receive justification. That's the other gospel. So let's, let's show you, I'm going to show you, let's hit the ground running here. The dialectic continues. First of all, we've shown that Paul states his thesis in Romans 1, 16 to 17. That's the thesis statement of his gospel. 1, 1 to 15, which we dealt with this week in our studies on Wednesday and Thursday, leads up to that thesis statement. 1, 18 to 32 is an expose of a the specter of a teacher that's about to come forth that Paul anticipates arriving in Rome. Why does he anticipate it? Because Romans is his tenth of ten epistles to churches, communal epistles. Philemon was also written, not just to a man, but to a church. His ten communal epistles, many of them, eight out of ten, had to do with a third-party interloper that went everywhere Paul went, and presented another gospel. You see it clearly, sharply, dramatically in Galatians. Paul starts by saying, I'm marveled, I'm amazed that you're so soon deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ into another gospel. And I I don't say another as if it deserves the title of another. For if anyone preaches another gospel than the one you've heard, Paul's gospel of salvation, unconditional salvation, And that covenant has its obligations, but it does not have its conditions. It doesn't have conditions to get in. It doesn't have conditions to stay in. But it has obligations of faithfulness, and that's where our choice comes in. So Romans 118 to 32 is a blocked speech. It's a parody. It's a satire of what this other person teaches. We've been through that. Then we went into this in Romans 2.1. This is Paul. And I'm going to be very explicit about this. I've been helped greatly by Douglas A. Campbell. I'm using his strategy largely here and agree with it completely. But Romans 2.1, Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse. He's speaking to the man that just gave us the sermon, the turn or burn sermon of a God of retributive justice and a God who rewards deserving on the part of man. That's not Paul's God. 
So Paul says this man in Romans 1.20 wants to tell all the pagans that they're without excuse because they have the witness of the stars. They have natural theology. Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse, O man. He addresses this individual teacher whom he anticipates arriving in Rome. So he is, he's got the whole thing together. He knows what this guy stands for. Whoever you are who judges, Paul says, for in passing judgment on another, you pronounce judgment on yourself because you are doing the same things. Now, he's going to prove that in Romans 3.10. He's going to hit this teacher with a barrage of quotations from the Psalms and the prophets that knock him out and knock him down, and then Paul drags him out. And then we have Paul's expose of the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. So look at what he says here. He goes on to say in 2.2, this is again, you say, Paul says, and then here's what he keeps reproducing. Here's the teacher. Here's this teacher who emerges from the shadows gradually as we read Romans. Here's what the teacher says. We know that the judgment of God is on those who do such things. We know that the judgment of God on those who do such things is according to truth. That's this teacher teaching. I'm going to deal with this a little more detail down the road, but I'm just trying to do this today so that you can see the argument unfolding. Verse 3, do you think... And this is what the man says. Do you think those who practice such things escape the judgment of God? But Paul inserts a couple parenthetical statements in here. Do you think, says this preacher, and then Paul says, do you think, O man, that you, that when you judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape The judgment of God. If we're going to call these pagans under the judgment of God, the retributive justice of God, then you come too. Paul is doing something ingeniously here, and it's a word we should appreciate. He's universalizing. He's saying, as Clint Eastwood said at the end of Unforgiven, we all got it coming. And by we all got it coming, I mean retributive judgment. And as you'll see, just just stay with me on this. Paul ingeniously right here begins to universalize. So again, he says in verse 2, you say, this is again the teacher. The teacher is saying, we know that the judgment of God on those who do such things is according to truth. And then he said, the teacher's ready to say, do you think that you will escape? Those who practice such things will escape the judgment of God? But Paul inserts, and you see it a little clearly in the Greek, Paul inserts and makes this sound like this. Do you think, O man, that when you judge those who practice such things and you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment, meaning the retribution judgment of God? So Paul ingeniously begins to universalize. That is, if the teacher is right, that God retributively judges those who do the things that he lists in Romans 1.18 to 32, then he himself cannot escape the retributive judgment of God because he does the same things. And Paul proves it in Romans 3 when he starts to say, all have gone out of the way. God looks down from heaven. He says, there's none that seeks God. There's none who understands. 
They've all together at once, meaning in one total mass, the whole of humanity has gone away. And then, of course, you know the climax of that, all sinned and keep coming short of the glory of God, being justified by grace, unconditional grace, rooted in the redemption wrought in Christ Jesus. We'll hit that today. We're going there. Paul is ingeniously here introducing a universalization of this. If the teacher is right, and he isn't, that God retributively judges those who do such things, then he himself, the teacher, cannot escape the retributive justice of God because he does the same things. Again, Paul will show that in Romans 3, 10 to 20. The teacher says, and let me make this clear, we know that the judgment of God is on those who do such things and that it's according to truth. We know that the judgment of God on those who do such things is according to truth. And do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? But Paul inserts this in the man's own sentence, O man, that when you judge and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape. This causes the man's own reasoning to include himself in the retributive justice of God. Anyone who condemns sinful pagans for their practices on the basis of deserving is also without excuse if he practices the same things. That's what Paul's asserting here. So Romans 2, 4 to 13 is all the teacher again. Here's the teacher's reasoning. By this time, Paul understands what this guy's all about so he can satirically expose his message. That's a very effective thing to do. What if there was a legalistic preacher in New Kensington and everybody knew it and he was on TV and he was a televangelist and he had a certain way of expressing himself that God is going to judge us and all this kind of stuff. And then a grace preacher came in, a truly grace preacher came in and mocked that sermon, just like Elijah mocked the 400 prophets of Baal in his day. Then you'd get the point, wouldn't you, that he's not, he is doing an expose of a false gospel. And this is the reasoning. Follow this because it, to me it's very clear. So in 2.4, this is the teacher now. This is the teacher. Paul is aware now because this guy and people like him have been interloping in Galatia, in the churches in Galatia. They've been interloping in Colossae. They've been interloping in Corinth. They're everywhere, and Paul has now mastered their whole technique. Verse 4, again, all the way to 13, is this teacher. Or do you scorn the wealth of God's benevolence and clemency and patience, ignorant of the fact that God's benevolence leads you to repentance? He's speaking here to pagans. But because of your hard an unrepentant heart. You are storing up for yourselves wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous, and by that he means retributive, judgment will be revealed. Apocalypto. This is the same sermon, Romans 1.18, after Paul says the righteousness of God, which is his unconditional, universal, saving act in Christ Jesus, is being apocalypto. This preacher has the exact contradictory idea that the wrath of God is being apocalypto against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness and all the impiety of the pagans. 
See, God put up a big tapestry in the sky of his creation. And the pagans are supposed to look up to that sky and say, well, there's God the creator there. And because they didn't, God gave them over to all kinds of egregious immoral practices. That's God. He starts off retributively judging people who, Paul says, don't even have the capacity to look up into the sky and see the divine design. And so this guy's already, well, he's already getting knocked around a little bit by Paul. So notice what he says in verse 5, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, this is the preacher preaching to the poor pagans, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's retributive judgment will be unveiled. Four, now he quotes here a verse, misquotes it, misinterprets this verse. For he will render to each person according to his works. Now there is a sense that we will be rewarded, evaluated and rewarded for the works that we've done if we participate in Christ by the Spirit and our works are motivated by love and performed by the willing of God in us, of course. But listen to what he says the reward is for your works. This is the preacher. For he will render to each person according to his works. Okay, Psalm 62, 12. Proverbs 24, 12. Eternal life for works here. Notice what he says in verse 7. Eternal life to those who by persisting in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. But wrath and retributive judgment to the self-seeking and to those who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. You can almost hear the cadence of this guy's voice. And he's, of course, concluding himself in those who seek for glory and honor and immortality, those who seek God. They will be rewarded, it says here, with the life of the coming age. It's a reward. He sounds sort of like the rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and said, good master, what do I have to keep on doing to inherit the life of the coming age? And Jesus started off by saying, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. In other words, there's only one righteousness that matters in Paul's gospel, and it's the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is revealed as his saving act in Christ. It's a rescue mission for the whole of humanity, not a lottery cast in the false idea of Calvinism that God predestines some to eternal damnation even before they're born. Now, that's really, that's wonderful. If you think God is a monster, that's wonderful. Calvinism has been tried and found wanting, in my view, except a few features of it, like depravity. Eternal life to those who, by doggedly doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, but wrath and retributive judgment to the self-seeking and to those who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Yes, verse 9, there will be tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man who produces evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the pagan, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who carries out the good. Why do you call them good? Same word. There's only one good name God, but that's not part of the translation. He said, he says, therefore, for God shows no favoritism. Another verse quoted Deuteronomy ten seventeen, but in a wrong position for as many who sin apart from the law. Paul's going here pretty soon in 321 to reply. 
will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who will be righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That's the teacher. That's not Paul. Paul never said, by persisting in well-doing, you will receive eternal life as a reward. That's the antithetical opposite of his gospel. And he replies very, very clearly. So all of this says that God judges retributively and rewards justly according to human deserving. Apparently, they didn't watch the movie Unforgiven, where deserves got nothing to do with it. Two quotes now from the movies. All of this says that God retributively judges and reveals his justice by rewarding justly according to human deserving. As if man in his pagan state has the capacity to rationalize the existence of God and to reason the existence of God and then to have an ethical capacity to line up. He does not, according to Paul's gospel. And so... This is totally in contradiction to the gospel of God about his son in Romans 1-2, in which the righteousness of God, which is the saving act of God in Christ, is being revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness, says Romans 1-17. That is the faithfulness of the son of God to faithfulness, which is our participation in the faithfulness of the son of God, which continues in his people. The faithful obedience of Jesus, the Son of God, which led to the cross, is a faithfulness that continues in his people who choose to participate in his history and in his life. I have been crucified with Christ means that I agree and I have chosen to identify with Jesus Christ retrospectively. I've chosen a participation with his history of crucifixion, burial, resurrection, ascension, and a sitting down with him in heavenly places. That's what Ephesians brings forth. Because Paul didn't have to deal with this teacher in Ephesians. All he, all he was dealing with here is he's in prison about a few miles west of Ephesus and of Laodicea. He writes to the Ephesians in what we now know as the epistle to the who? Laodiceans, and there he says, hey, this is what you guys have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be before him in love. You've been predestined this way. You've been predestined this way. You've been accepted in the beloved. And he tells them, that's the pure gospel. God did this according to the mystery of his intent, which is to summarize everything up in Christ, the whole creation and all of humanity. And he begins by breaking down the wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles, making one new man. That's the beginning of this universal thrust from God. Paul doesn't have to deal with this teacher there. So we don't conclude like scholars that Paul couldn't have written Ephesians because he's not dealing with justification there because he's only dealing with justification in Romans and Galatians because of a false gospel that he's fighting against. Paul's gospel isn't forensic, it isn't judicial, it isn't a retributive God protecting people from him by sending his son Jesus to endure his wrath. That's not the gospel. God did not send his son to protect mankind from God. 
God sent his son to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ's love was so great that he demonstrated he'd rather die than destroy his enemies. He took the death of the cross. That's how much God loves. But man can choose to resist the reconciliation that God has wrought in Christ and bear consequences in this life. Reap a harvest of corruption in this life that ends at death. Or we can sow to the Spirit by our own free volition. Make choices to live the life of the Spirit in the life of the Spirit, to walk by means of the Spirit who enables us and reap a harvest of everlasting life now. Life of the coming age now in anticipation of that glorious day. So I'm preaching, but that's part of the whole package here. So from faithfulness to faithfulness means that the gospel reveals the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's how you are delivered graciously through the faithfulness of another, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, I'm getting it. I have eternal life. Why? Well, because I doggedly pursued goodness. I did moral works. I gave treasures of the children. I did this and I did that. I evangelized. I prophesied. Well, I cast out demons, some will say. Hmm. So from faithfulness, that's the faithfulness of the Son of God, to faithfulness. Notice what Paul's gospel emphasizes. The righteousness of God is revealed by it. Not yours. God's righteousness. The psalmist in Psalm 71, I will speak of his righteousness all day long. Mine, I don't have any. The righteousness of God is the saving act of God in Christ the King because it's the King's right action to rescue his people. And his people is the humanity we call the human race. The gospel of Paul is communal and universal. It isn't individualistic. It does not rest on an individual's deserving or desert or performance or passing the tests of the creation. So, This guy's gospel is a God of retributive justice who punishes people for not recognizing his invisibility, his incorruptibility, his immortality, and his eternal power by handing them over to do all the things in Romans 124 to 28, which still shock fundies. Now, here's an assumption that you've got to do away with. Because Paul says that's not his gospel, that doesn't mean Paul says, let's go out and do evil that good may come. That's a slanderous accusation of Paul's gospel. There is an ethical capacity that's created. In fact, there's an ethical efficacy. There's a spiritual life that has ethics and morality associated with it by the power of the spirit when we put off the old man. That's Christianity. It's hardly practiced today. It's hardly practiced today, Christianity, the spiritual life. And so we, the, the, this false gospel, which is what I call, what Alan Torrance rightly called the tragedy in Western thought, a tragedy of Western thought. All it does is aids and abets the Darwins, the Nietzsche's, the Freud's, the, the Marx's. It aids and abets them because it doesn't present the cure for their lie. It does not present the cure for their lie. It presents some other gospel that's ineffective. So there's a great historical reason for this gospel today, and don't forget it. There's a reason for the gospel today, 
as I'm proclaiming it. So Paul eventually shows, now listen to Paul. I'm going to skip over to 3.10. We're going to deal with 2.14 to 29 also. But notice with Paul. Here comes Paul with his katina, his cascade, his barrage, his one, two, three, four punch, and one, two, three, four again. Here's where he knocks down the, the preacher, the teacher that he anticipates coming to Rome. He says, as it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. He's quoting Psalm 14, 1 to 3, which is emphatically repeated in Psalm 53, 1 through 3. And he's quoting it in context. He's quoting it, universalizing the plight of mankind in general, because God's rescue mission isn't toward individuals who deserve it, or even individuals who individually make a decision for Jesus. He has planned and effected a salvation for the whole of the human race. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Was he or not? I think he was. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous. Paul's talking now. Sounds a little different if you read these passages back to back. Not even one. I like that. There is no one who understands. Means nobody has the rational capacity to study the divine design in creation and come up with a conclusion that there must be a God and that he is all-powerful That rationality does not come automatically with man. And man should not be rated by it as if he deserves God's favor. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Well, wait a minute. This other guy just said, if you seek glory and honor and immortality, which are names for God, you'll receive eternal life. But Paul says there's none that seeks God. You see what I'm doing? I'm recovering Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of God. It's the most important thing happening in this world today. Not an election, not a presidency, not a cabinet, not terrorism. This gospel being recovered, which will set things right in history in a great measure and put things on the right track. This is what it's all about. This is the most important thing. Not you anticipating something under the tree. Not a football game, a baseball game, a soccer game, or a World Series. This gospel being recovered right in your hearing at this time in history is the greatest thing going on in this world today. And as we think of the freedom that we have to sit here and appropriate this gospel, we think of the lack of freedom. We think of the the Egyptian Christians that were slaughtered last night by terrorism. And we pray for them because of their endurance of great persecutions which we have not faced yet in this nation we think of them because they are us they are part of us and they are the part of the people that are already participating in christ jesus they are our brothers they are our sisters we pray for all saints all right sorry i got off on the preaching track there some people say that's the only thing that reaches them so i'm coming after you Again, verse 11, there's no one who understands. In other words, hey, teacher, if somebody understands God's creation, then God rewards them. If they don't understand, God hands them over to all these terrible things, which they know are 
deserving of the of the death sentence. Do they? Do pagans interview somebody that has no idea about faith in Christ and doesn't want to believe in him and say, don't you know that gossip and backbiting deserves the sentence of death? And they'll say, of course it does. No, they won't. They'll think the person I'm gossiping about deserves the death sentence. Look what he says here. Verse 12. All have turned away. And the word in the Greek means at the same time. All have turned away at the same time. Well, when did all the human race turn away at the same time? When Adam turned away. You see, this teacher is going to try to say, well, Adam screwed things up and tied the, the human race in a knot. And so God sent our forefather after the flesh, Abraham, to unravel the knot. And Paul said, not. Paul said, God sent Jesus Christ. If you're going to use Abraham as a paradigm for faith leading to justification, then you've got to tell a story where he never failed, where his faithfulness never staggered. When if you read Genesis, it staggered all over the place. He was like a drunken man. He went into Hagar to produce a child because he didn't believe God could do it because he and Sarah were getting on in age. They were getting it on past the age according to God's grace. They were getting on without getting it on. And God says, you're going to get it on. And Sarah laughed her head off. You can laugh. Well, I can't laugh at something so impious. Really? So your right pastor is this teacher. He has been for some of you. You know what this message does? It takes everything away and then gives everything to you in Christ. Everything to you. You lose your life to find it. Look at 12. All have turned away at the same time. I'll say when. Paul answers it later. When Adam turned away. All sinned when he sinned. Through one act of disobedience, the whole human race turned away with Adam. Through one act of obedience in Christ Jesus, who was handed over for our sins and raised up for our deliverance, our gracious deliverance is what Paul means by justification. It's not forensic. It's mystical. It's a mystery of inclusion in Christ. That's Paul's gospel. It's the gospel of the mystery in Ephesians 6.20. Now, it's going to take me six months to iron these things out, so you're not going to get everything today, but you're going to get a pretty good chunk of it. At the same time, they turned away. Becoming depraved, says the Greek. That means having radical ethical incapacity. How can you say that people who have this rational capacity, people have a rational capacity to understand God through creation, when the Bible says there is none that understands? They have altogether become depraved. That means having a radical rational incapacity to reason with God and a radical ethical incapacity. Oh, they can reconfigure Adam into nice and humanly good trends. They can pass him through the motions of sacramental movements. They can pass him through the rituals of baptism and communion, but it's still Adam. This is putting off the old man altogether. There is none who does good. Those who persist in good will receive eternal life. Well, wait a minute, Paul says, there's none who does good. So we're all screwed. That got your attention. Their throat, one throat, singular, for the whole of mankind, from God's viewpoint as he looked down from heaven. Their throat, singular, is an open grave. 
and they deceive with their tongues. That's plural. Psalm 5, 9. The poison of cobras is under their lips. Psalm 140 in verse 3. So when they speak, what do they do? They poison you with lies. They poison you with deception. They poison you with slander. They poison you with untruth. They're so used to the untruth that they accept it as truth. It's poison. It's toxic. And so is this teacher's gospel. It's, I like what Douglas Campbell said. It's the Kool-Aid we drink every single day. It's a tragedy of Western thought that came here to America with the Puritans in many cases, not in all cases, and infected Western thought with an American Pelagianism that has infected the pulpits in churches across this land and is entirely ineffective to stave the tsunami wave of radical religiosity of Marxist philosophy, of Nietzschean nihilism that has taken and gripped the millennial children. This gospel has the power to knock it out of the ballpark. This gospel has the power to actually persuade the atheist who became an atheist because he couldn't process the doctrine of hell. And who the hell can? I have no gripes against Atheists, if what they have rebelled against is the Christian stand on God, predestining people to an eternal damnation of horrible torment for his own glory. I don't blame somebody for saying, I, you know, I don't want that God. If that's God, the hell with him. I don't want him. I don't want anything to do with that God. That God is a monster. That God is a beast. That God, Satan looks better than him. All right. Is, it, is that clear? I hope that's clear. Try to be a little clearer in the future. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10.7. You don't believe that? Well, I heard a certain presidential candidate, his mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. My husband's never would be. Mine was never that way. Bullshit. The poison of cobras is under their tongue. The mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. They have not known the path of peace. Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. 18, there is no reverence of God before their eyes, according to Psalm 36, 1. Now we know that whatever the law says, it addresses to those under the law. It addresses those under the law. And Paul kind of echoes what this teacher says in this phrase, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may become accountable to God. And here he quotes Psalm 143, 2, which is a key verse in Paul's gospel. Because no human being, no human being will be justified by the works of the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He's going to go on to explain that later on. So here, let me just get to the heart of the dialectic here. Teacher. Teacher says this, Romans 2, 7, for example. Just put Romans 2, 7 and 8 back to back with Romans 3, 10 and t- through 12, and you'll get the heart of the dialectic. You'll get the heart of the contradictory dialectic going on in Romans. Here's the teacher, 2, 7. Eternal life to those who doggedly pursue good, doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality but wrath and retributive judgment to the self-seeking and to those who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Paul, Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away at the same time, becoming depraved. There is no one who does good. There is not even a single one. It seems like by the teacher's reasoning, we all got it coming. And I don't just mean death. I mean retributive justice. That's if God is a God of retributive justice. He didn't save us from himself as if he's an angry God. And that's the false gospel too. The false idea of the atonement is God is a very angry person. He has a great retributive justice. And so he sent his son to protect the human race and save the human race from himself. Because he's mean and vicious. But his son is gentle as a lamb. His son, if you've seen his son, you've seen his father. The father is exactly like the son. The father would rather die than punish you. The son did die rather than punish you. That's the love of God. That's the gospel of Paul. That's limitless benevolence. That's God's plan to summarize everything in Christ Jesus according to the mystery of his will. That's the mystery by which God will lock up everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. No Jew first, Gentile second. All Jew and Gentile alike in disobedience so that he might have mercy upon all in Romans 11.32, a hallmark verse. So it seems like that by the teacher's reasoning, we all got it coming. Wrath or retributive judgment. Obviously, the teacher and all his cronies are under this indictment. And so they do the same things as they condemn because Paul says, well, the scripture says everybody does what you're condemning the pagans for doing. Because everybody included in Adam has no ethical capacity, no efficacy to please God by their ethics or morals. Obviously, the teacher then is under this indictment. So what do you mean, teacher? What do you mean, teacher? And every epistle has an exigence. Every epistle has a better call Paul related to it. And as we've said before, Galatians... A defection among the churches. Better call Paul. The Corinthians didn't understand sexuality or idolatry or how to handle all the problems of a pagan onrush and a Jewish onrush into the same community. Better call Paul. Paul answers 20 questions they ask in a letter that we don't have. Paul wrote a letter of tears, which we know now as 1 Corinthians, and he had to address very hard a lot of subjects. And so better call Paul. Paul writes Romans with the anticipation that he's going to go through Rome to Spain after he makes a collection for the Jerusalem church. And on the way to Spain, he's going to Rome, but he anticipates the arrival of this teacher whom he's had to deal with in almost every place he's ever been in the worst year of his life, uh, which is CE or AD 50 to 51. Paul wrote all kinds of letters. He wrote Ephesians, which we know now as Laodiceans. He wrote Philemon, not just to Philemon, but to the church in the house of Archippus. He wrote Colossians. He wrote those three in 50. He wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians and two letters to the Philippians. And in the second letter to the Philippians, which we have, he quotes what he wrote in the first, which is Philippians 3, 2 to 
4.3, in which he says, I've told you before, I'll tell you again, they are evil workers, they are the concision, they are the mutilators, they are the dogs. There are many who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their gut. And so he warns against this whole idea, this whole teaching thing. And so when he writes Romans, his 10th and final epistle to the communities, he knows what this guy's all about. He knocks him down. He drags him out. When he gets to Rome, he can preach a pure gospel like he did to the Laodiceans. He can build them up. He can impart something to them, a gift to them by his apostolic teaching, something that no one else could do, but the apostle could do. Give them a gift, he says in Romans 1, 8 to 9 and following. So, teacher, when you say that all who do good will receive eternal life, how can that be if there's none that does good? Not even a single one. Not even you. Paul's after him. Now, in 321 to 26, this will be the climax and we'll end here. We're going to continue in 321 to 26. This is unusual for me. I usually go word by word, verse by verse. Not in this series. I'm getting the whole thing together here. Romans 3.21, here's Paul. This is Paul from 3.21 to 26 especially. This is the passage that I intuitively thought was dramatically important in the first four chapters of Paul before I even read Campbell's book. But here's what Paul says. This anticipates, 3.21 to 26, anticipates Paul's unchained gospel, his Gospel of unconditional salvation. No condition met on the part of mankind to get in to Christ or to stay in, but an obligation to those in Christ to participate in the life of Christ through the Spirit, which is an ongoing decision in which the faithfulness of the Son of God that led him to the cross, through the cross, to ascension and session at the Father's right hand, is a faithfulness that continues in you. That's what it means when Jesus says, you will be enthroned with me as I have been enthroned with my Father. In Rome, Revelation 3.21. But here's Paul anticipating the unchained gospel in Romans 5-8. through 8. But now, apart from the law, he goes back to quote one thing this guy says, you sin apart from the law, you're judged apart from the law. You sin with the law, you're judged by the law. Either way, again, either way, you've had it, according to the teacher. But Paul says, but now apart from the law altogether, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Sounds like he said that already in Romans 1.17 when he established the thesis of his gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who have faith, meaning once you have, are in Christ, and are participating in Christ's faithfulness, you see the gospel as the power of God for salvation. You see the gospel as the very omnipotent love of God that saves the human race. But it's only retrospectively from being in Christ. Paul says the only time you can think rationally is when you have the mind of Christ. When you're in Christ, then you can think retrospectively then you can look up into the heavens and say the heavens declare the glory of God. That wasn't written by a pagan. That was written by the psalmist. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth declares his handiwork and his word is pure and righteous and clean. You don't know that. 
And as a dear friend said to me recently, their conversion experience was going from hating the book they called the Bible to never being able to put it down. What happened between those two things? He got shifted into Christ. And the veil was taken away. When the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Christ shines through the scriptures and you can't put the book down. I couldn't put it down from 1972 till today. I can't put the book down. I can't put it down. It's riveting. That's what reviewers say about books they like. Riveting. Kind of overused. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's hit it now. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Word phanerao here. P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. Phanerao. It's a synonym to apocalypto. Therein, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, which is his saving act in Christ for the whole human race, is being revealed. So what, what happened in Western thought? It got crushed. It got buried. It got hidden. It got stuck in a closet, buried under the earth like a talent in a napkin, put under a bushel basket by a tragedy in Western thought that infected the human race from the Reformation on, in fact, from right after the patristic fathers who understood this universal gospel onward. And this is in the subconscious mind of people in the United States of America. And it's for this reason that we have such polarization, fragmentation, divisiveness in our nation today. This gospel was, is what's going to rescue this nation. Not your favorite political candidate or a well-chosen cabinet, or governors from the dog catcher to the president across the United States. That doesn't cut it. This gospel is what cuts it. 322. I love this, though. He says, the righteousness of God is being revealed, attested by the Torah, the law, and the prophets. The prophets and the, the law and the prophets have said all along there's going to be a righteousness apart from law. They testify of it. It's going to happen in Jesus, the Messiah. That being, Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It does not say the righteousness of God through the faith in Jesus Christ by you. The righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's salvation. That's Paul's gospel. We're recovering it to all who believe. That is, listen carefully. It does not say the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Christ imputed to all those who believe or all those who have faith. It says the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Christ is revealed to all those with faith who are given faith by God after being shifted from sin into Christ. It doesn't say the sin that this righteousness is imputed to them. It says it's revealed to them. It's only when you're in Christ that you see this truth. That's why you say to the world, be reconciled to God. But you know who needs to hear be reconciled to God more than the pagans? The Christians. They need to be reconciled to this gospel. They're not. They're resisting it. They're going out to get decisions of the gospel for the gospel of this teacher. It's going to take me six months to make this sink in, but some of you are getting it already. Here we have it to all for there is no distinction. There is no Jew first then Gentile. There is no Jew first then pagan. There is no distinction. 
teacher, for you see, here's that little word that crops up 70 times in Romans, all. He explains when. When did all sin? When did all go out of the way, like, the Rome, like he said in Romans 3? When did all go, to, go away at the same time, go away from God at the same time? When Adam sinned, the one act. You see, Abraham didn't come and cut the Gordian knot that Adam tied the human race up in. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, came and cut the Gordian knot that Adam tied the whole human race in because he was delivered over for our sins. He wasn't delivered over to save us from an angry God. Jonathan Edwards, key revivalists of the American times in the beginning, sinners in the hands of an angry God, to hell with that gospel. That's the gospel of the specter of the teacher that's emerging from the shadows that Paul knocks down, then drags him out by his backward collar, right in front of the Romans. So Paul's rocky, not first rocky, the second rocky. Paul is rocky that wins. And the whole people of Romans say, well, I guess we know the right gospel now. For you see, all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified undeservedly and unconditionally. Remember that word, dorian, means without a cause in you, so it means unconditionally. Dorian, Greek word, unconditionally, undeservedly and unconditionally is how I would translate it. Being justified undeservedly and unconditionally by grace through the redemption wrought in Christ Jesus which is the redemptive act of God in Christ Jesus, as Romans 5, 8 is going to say, while we were yet sinners and hostile. God wasn't hostile. We were. We're We were actually hostile to the very love that would rather die than destroy its enemies. We were hostile to that. And some still are. While we were yet hostile, Christ died. Rather than destroy his enemies, his love was so strong that he died. For our sins. He died for our sins. He died to save his people from their sins, not from the Father whom he revealed in his crucifixion and death and resurrection. So he goes on to say in verse 25, God displayed him publicly. That's the cross. That's Calvary. That's a cross on top of a mountain shaped like a skull. God displayed him publicly as the place of expiation. Or propitiation, as Denny said in his prayer, through faithfulness, through faithfulness by his blood. God displayed Jesus Christ publicly as propitiation or the death for sins, the satisfactory death for all sins through faithfulness, which means the cross is the demonstration of Jesus Christ's faithfulness culminating in death. For he was obedient even to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, at the mention of which every knee will genuflect. You see, the reason every knee genuflects and every tongue confesses is that man does not make a decision for Jesus. Jesus made the decision for man, for this ultimate salvation. You don't Choose your ultimate salvation. God chose it in his righteousness. Christ chose it in his faithfulness. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. Yours is to be the savior of all mankind. Let your will 
be done. I am the single inclusive representative of all humankind. I make a decision that they be saved by saying, not my will, but yours be done. So I'll go and drink this cup. The decision was made then for your ultimate salvation. You can spend your whole life claiming to be a Christian and refuse by your own free volition to be reconciled to this gospel and not even be expressing the Christian life and be just like the pagan. Or you can say, I was crucified with Christ. Now, if a man that's an atheist in this world just came up and realized that and said, I was crucified with Christ, would he mean it and would it be true for him? Yes! But Christians think, now that we're saved, we have the power to do good in ourselves. That's what this leader said. This teacher said circumcision, physical circumcision of the males of the pagans will actually give them a power, a generative power to have a moral and ethical ability now that they didn't have before. And Paul said, no. Circumcision, schmirkumcision. He might as well have called this Since Paul was a Jew, he wasn't attacking the Jews. He never attacked Judaism. He never attacked the Judaistic religion. He never attacked the Jews. He was after one Jew. And Paul was a Jew, and he was after another Jew. It's as if he's calling this guy a schmuck. Here we have it. You see all sin and fall short of the glory of God being justified undeservedly and unconditionally by grace through the redemption wrought in Christ Jesus as he says, and again, this goes shoots right over into Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners and hostile, Christ died. And this is how God exhibited his love. God displayed, verse 25, him publicly as the place of expiation through faithfulness by his blood. His blood is a metonymy. It's similar to the word his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. The blood of Christ's cross. The Bible says on the basis of the peace made by the blood of Christ's cross, he reconciles everything in the heaven and on earth. You tell me what else there is. Things visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, angelic beings all the way down to parsley, principalities to parsley. You tell me what else there is. There isn't anything else. God has a mystery plan to summarize everything in Christ. He's going to get it done. We have, you know what I'm celebrating this Christmas? Fellowship with an all-saving Savior. I'm thrilled by the immensity of it. I'm thrilled by the immediacy of it. I'm thrilled by the immediate presence of my Savior. I love being in fellowship with an all-saving, successful Savior, not a somewhat saving Savior who saves a few lucky people called the church. I have fellowship with an all-saving Savior. If one died for all, then all died. But in closing, I'm sorry, I'm I'm excited about this. I'm impassioned by this. The word has lit me up inside. I'm like a furnace inside. I cannot stop saying it, and I won't. And I won't apologize. And watch out for knee-jerk reactions as if I'm ruling out volition by this. Watch out for knee-jerk reactions as if I'm okaying and condoning the things that the teacher condemned people for. Watch out. I said, give me six months. For a demonstration of capital H-I-S, his righteousness. For a demonstration of his righteousness. By what demonstration of my righteousness must I inherit? 
the life of the coming age. Teacher, will you just keep pursuing good and you'll get eternal life? That's an emphasis on man's righteousness. It's an anthropocentric gospel. This is a theocentric, Trinitarian, Christocentric gospel. Verse 25 closes with, for a demonstration of his righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Nothing but God's love by which he enacted an all-saving act for the human race in Christ. That's God's righteousness. Through the passing over of sins committed previous to the atonement. And here's where we come right to where we are today. God passed over the sins committed previous to the cross because he sent Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins, and that includes his people before the cross. So by the forbearance of God, in verse 26, toward the demonstration of capital H-I-S, I'm preserving my voice, his righteousness in the present period of time, 21st century included, by showing that he is righteous, And that he justifies, and as we've seen, that word righteous means his saving act. It's right for the king to preserve and deliver his people. God is the king. Christ is his king. His kingly messianic representative. So at the present time, God desires a demonstration of his righteousness in the present period of time by showing that he is righteous. And that he justifies or delivers by grace people on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness. Man, is that clean? It's clean. It's cut from the bone. It's meat. It's cut from the bone of the teacher's gospel. Please, whose righteousness? God's. Whose faithfulness? Christ's. That's all needs to be said today. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to unravel a dialectic, a, a pers- an expose of a false gospel, back-to-back with the exposition of the true gospel. May our church, may this assembly be truly liberated and transformed by this truth so that we can represent it properly to an age that is filled with deception and affected by so many negative philosophies. We ask these things in Christ's name.